Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of That Blue Food Dude, a Percy Jackson podcast. I hope you all had a great week. My week's been pretty good, just trying to keep myself occupied with different kinds of projects. One of them being this week's episode. My thoughts on chapters 5 and 6 of The Lightning Thief. For those of you who have not read chapter 5, it's called I Play Pinnacle with a Horse. It starts off in the camp's infirmary and Percy is going in and out of consciousness, watched over and fed by Annabeth Chase. And the minute he opens his eyes, she pelts him with questions. What's been stolen? What's going to happen at the summer solstice? And Percy's like, what? all groggy and disoriented. The next time he fully wakes up, he's in a rocking chair outside on the porch of what's called the big house, looking out over the valley of what is Camp Half-Blood. And there's Grover standing by the railing, holding a shoebox and wearing an orange Camp Half-Blood t-shirt, jeans, and Converse high tops. Then Grover opens up the shoebox and it's the Minotaur horn and everything comes back with the fight with the Minotaur and his mom. He comes to realize that it was real and that she's gone. And there's Grover feeling so awful and saying that it's all his fault. Percy doesn't blame him. And on the table near him is a glass of what looks like iced cold apple cider. He drinks it and it's not. Although it looks exactly like apple cider, it tastes exactly like his mom's homemade, warm, gooey, blue chocolate chip cookies in liquid form. And Grover informs him that he's drinking ambrosia, nectar, drink of the gods, which heals him almost instantly. He meets Chiron and Mr. D, or Dionysus, who is the camp director. Him and Chiron are in the middle of a game of Pinnacle. Chiron tells him that Mr. Brunner was a pseudonym and that he's glad to see Percy alive. Now that he's here, he is safe and he can begin training. And nearby Chiron and Mr. D standing by the railing is Annabeth. Chiron calls Annabeth over. Chiron's like, Annabeth, why don't you check on Percy's bunk? Make sure it's all ready for him. And herein comes that famous line, you drool when you sleep. And then she takes off down the lawn, her blonde hair flying behind her. And he informs Percy that the Greek gods of ancient Greece and of ancient myth are in fact real and powerful and living and at work in his life now in modern times and explains how the gods moved with the heart of the West, Western civilization. They, the gods, started out in ancient Greece and went to Rome and then moved farther and farther west until they are now currently in North America, the U.S. And so while Mount Olympus is still in ancient Greece, they have also made their own Mount Olympus here in the U.S., specifically in New York. And how Percy is a part of 
all that and a part of the gods how that is his reality now and percy is trying to connect the dots and just taking it in and of course mr d dionysus isn't helping much because he is the god of wine and yet he is not allowed to drink due to restrictions placed on him by his father zeus over an offense that dionysus made against him and so he's not allowed to drink and as further punishment he was forced to be the director of the camp so he can't drink he hates being there and he hates kids so he's in a grumpy mood all the time mr d calls grover into the big house because he has to reprimand him and grover's already on thin ice from the last time he messed up with half-bloods bringing them over and so that leaves Percy and Chiron. Chiron is still at this moment in his wheelchair that he used as Mr. Brenner. And it's only after he stands up that Percy sees it wasn't a wheelchair at all. It was a magical contraption hiding Chiron's centaur body. So Chiron stands on all four hooves before Percy as a centaur and says, Come on, Percy, let's meet the other campers. So that is your synopsis of chapter 5. And now for my analysis of this chapter. So Percy is lying there in the infirmary, going in and out of unconsciousness, being spoon-fed pudding by Annabeth. How she is introduced and how their relationship is established within these next few chapters, it just feels way more paced and well-rounded and like more intimate in a way than the movie introduction of Percy and Annabeth. Ten plus books with Percy and Annabeth and everything that they go through and their relationship starts right here in this chapter. Now after a few days of going in and out of unconsciousness, he wakes up sitting in a rocking chair on the porch of the big house and is remembering that his mom got taken by the Minotaur. But as he's waking up, he sees Camp Half-Blood for the first time, and he gives us a little description of what it is. I am so excited to see that all come to life on screen. I'll probably end up tearing up. And as Percy sees the Minotaur horn in Grover's hands, and it's all coming back to him and hitting him, that his mom is gone and he's essentially an orphan now because there was no way in his mind that he was going to live with his stepdad. Percy's stepdad, Gabe, was awful. He harassed Percy and his mom daily. Verbal abuse, maybe even some physical, it's never explicitly said or even really implied, but it's awful enough for him to rather live on the streets or pretend to be 17 and join the army. Which, look at those two ideas he had in his mind. Fast forward six books later, in The Son of Neptune, he is doing exactly those two things. He is living on the streets, running and fighting for his life, and he is almost 17, and when he gets to Camp Jupiter, he joins their cohort, their army. And it says that he looks over and sees Grover expecting to be hit. Grover and all the other satyrs, they all are sort of under the command of their council, the Cloven Elders, but also under the command of Dionysus. I 
think it's because he is the camp director and they are the keepers or the protectors of the demigods and it is their job to go out and find them and bring them to camp. And if something goes wrong, like it did in Grover's case, or cases, the satyrs get punished. But I will say this. Mr. D, how dare you hit satyrs? One, that's bad. That's horrible. Two, Grover. Now, the game Pinochle is never really explained in this chapter, and Mr. D doesn't really explain it in the book other than to say that, quote, it is, along with gladiator fighting and Pac-Man, one of the greatest games ever invented by humans, end quote. For those of you who don't know what Pinnacle is, according to Google, Pinnacle is also called Pinochle, a trick-taking Ace-10 card game, typically for two to four players and played with a 48-card deck. Players score points by trick-taking and also by forming combinations of cards into melds. What I've kind of always found interesting in the series is the emphasis put on the power of names, whether it be the names of demigods, gods, monsters. When Percy asked Mr. D what his initial stands for, he says, Young man, names are powerful things. You don't just go around using them for no reason. There's power in invoking something or someone, whether it be the monsters, the gods, or demigods themselves. And the reason I found it so interesting was because that is true. If you give someone your name, you are giving them a piece of you. You are giving them a sort of power over you, in a way. I've been a fan of Percy Jackson for years now. I've read the Percy Jackson in the Olympian series, the Heroes of Olympus series, the Kane Chronicles. I'm still working my way through Magnus Chase and the Trials of Apollo series because I took a break after a while and years go by and now I finally picked them up again. So I'm still working my way through those, but I have read the short stories in between the earlier series, even a newer one called Camp Half-Blood Confidential. That book is a little bit different in how it's written and laid out, but I absolutely loved it because it shows you Camp Half-Blood in a more in-depth way. And in the book, we get actual info on the orientation film that Chiron mentions to Percy here in The Lightning Thief, but Percy never ends up watching it. Now, it is mentioned again in the PJO series when Nico and Bianca come to Camp Half-Blood in The Titan's Curse, and Nico goes off to watch it. And of the latest campers that we know of in these books, Nico is the only one to have seen it until Camp Half-Blood Confidential. And it is hilariously embarrassing. So hilariously embarrassing that they decide to create an entirely new orientation book that each of them help write, which is Camp Half-Blood Confidential. I like how Riordan has Chiron explain how the gods are alive in modern day America and in the modern world as a whole. He says that the gods' essence are tied to the heart of the West or the flame of the West, Western civilization, which first originated in ancient Greece and spread throughout the world. And as it spread throughout the world, the gods moved with it. As explanations go, 
it's a pretty good one because it has roots in history as far as ancient Greece being the heart of a more modernized, free, equal civilization, society in the world. Democracy, republic, free thought, philosophy, learning, art. Those are some of the good characteristics of Western civilization that are still alive today. Now, that's not to say that Western civilization is perfect. By any means, it's not. No civilization is perfect, though. Each have their own pros and cons, regardless. In my opinion, it is a cool explanation connecting modern history with ancient Greek myth. Now on to my thoughts on chapter 6. For those of you who haven't read chapter 6, it starts off with Percy walking with Chiron on his tour of Camp Half-Blood. They go through the strawberry fields where campers are picking strawberries, satyrs are playing flutes in the fields, and they pass the woods where it's stocked with monsters to fight and where they play Capture the Flag on Fridays. They pass the archery range, the stables, the javelin range, the amphitheater, the arena, the dining pavilion, the cabins. He pops his head in to cabin three. That's when Chiron pulls him back and they keep going on their tour. And they meet up with Annabeth at cabin 11 where she's waiting. And inside it is crammed with kids who are the children of Hermes, the god of travelers and thieves. Or undetermined, which is what Percy is for now. And there Percy is introduced by Annabeth to Luke, who is that cabin's counselor. And Percy is feeling rather shy and awkward, uncomfortable at all the attention. Him and Annabeth go outside and are walking and talking. Percy is trying to make sense of this and just taking it all in. And up comes Clarice, big, brawny, mean Clarice, daughter of Ares, gets all up in his face and is sizing him up and is getting ready to just pound him and tells him, we got an initiation for newbies. So Percy gives Annabeth his minotaur horn and he's preparing to fight her, but she grabs him by the neck and hair and drags him all the way to the camp bathrooms. And as they're dragging him closer and closer to the toilet, she and a couple other of her mean friends, they're like, look, he's big three material and all that. And he's just thinking, there's no way I'm going down in this toilet. There's no way I'm doing this. And he gets a tense feeling in his gut. And all of a sudden, the pipes bust and water sprays up over him and at Clarice and the girls and pushes them and floods the entire bathroom and they spin out in the water and out the door covered in mud and smelling like sewage and there's Percy sitting on the floor in the only dry spot in the room. His clothes are all dry. Annabeth is soaking wet but she didn't get pushed out. He doesn't even know how he did that. And there's Clarice and her buddy's all pissed and she's like, you're dead, new boy, you're dead. And he gives her a sassy retort that makes her more mad and she has to be carried off. Annabeth is still standing there, soaking wet, and he can't really tell what she's thinking really. And she's thinking, of all things, that she wants him on her team for Capture the Flag. There is your synopsis of chapter 6. And here is my analysis. 
it's mentioned in this chapter that Grover is 28, and yet he can still pass for a 6th grader. And Chiron explains to Percy, satyrs mature half as fast as humans do. And what's cool is that this year, Percy would be 28 on August 18th if he was a real person, because he was born in 1993. But in the books, he just turned 18 by the end of the Tower of Nero. But it's just an interesting fact how this year. He would be 28, the same age as Grover is in The Lightning Thief. I'd love to have a tour of Camp Half-Blood by Chiron. Chiron is so cool. The way he mentors and teaches, he really cares for them as if they were his own. And I liked how Percy is describing more of Camp Half-Blood to the reader. We find out that there is... Capture the flag on Friday nights, an armory, an archery range, a canoe lake, stables, javelin range, an amphitheater, an arena where they hold sword and spear fights. I would have died and gone to Elysium if I was there. As of this book, there are 12 cabins, each for the Olympian god and goddesses for their children to stay in. Each of them are, like the gods, different in the way that they are built and decorated. He also mentions a commons area, uh, Greek statues and fountains, flower beds, and a couple of basketball hoops. And here we get our first glimpse of Clarice LaRue, daughter of Ares. Clarice is cool because in the books it's like she changes bit by bit, but still not at all. I love Clarice as much as all the other ones. It's hard to really imagine the story without any of these cool characters. Connor and Travis Stoll, Katie and Miranda Gardner, Will Solace, Nico and Bianca D'Angelo, Michael Yu, Lee, Jake, Charlie Beckendorf, Selena Beauregard. All of these characters are special in their own way and bring so much to the story, including Clarice. Even though she was a jerk at first, she, like so many of the other characters that I mentioned, brings so much to the table or the pool table. In the book, Percy asks Chiron if he's really the Chiron of the myths that trained Hercules and all the other heroes, and Chiron's like, yes I am, and Percy's like, but shouldn't you be dead? And Chiron tells him that he wished to do what he loved, train heroes for as long as humanity needed him, and the gods granted that wish, and so he has now been immortal for eons and eons. And Percy asks him, doesn't it ever get boring? And Chiron answers, no, no, horribly depressing at times, but never boring. Percy asks him, why depressing? And Chiron seems to go hard of hearing again. If you really think about it, Chiron has been alive for eons and eons and has trained many of the great Greek heroes that we know. Almost all of those Greek heroes, except for Perseus, have died horribly tragic deaths. 
and Chiron, being immortal, had to watch each one of his pupils die eventually, and that has taken a lot of toll on him that you can only just see in the wrinkles of his eyes and the weariness in his eyes and the grayness of his beard, but mentally, imagine being immortal and watching your children die over and over again. Children whom you've loved, cared for, trained, put time into, and you're just living on and on and on. That's a big one right there. That That's heavy to carry. All that freons, you know, all those memories. Yeah, it would be depressing as hell. Cabin 11 is where the children of Hermes stay. And also where the newcomers, or undetermined as the camp calls them, also stay. That is where Percy is put for the time being. And the book describes the cabin as crowded to almost full capacity. With kids in the bunks, kids on the floor, wherever there's any room. That's pretty crappy sleeping arrangements. If I were Percy... I'd go get a blanket and a pillow from one of the empty cabins, and I'd go sleep on the beach. I love how Ryden takes ADHD and dyslexia, one a disorder and the other a learning disability, and turns them into superpowers, basically. Turns them into an advantage, into what makes someone special. I wish cerebral palsy and dyscalculia, well, one, I wish I didn't have either of them. If I have to have them, I wish they were superpowers or advantages to reading an ancient language or battle reflexes as ADHD and dyslexia are used in this book. And that's partly why I also gravitated to these books and Riordan did that. Most of you probably know why, but... His own son had ADHD and dyslexia, and he wanted his son to feel and know that those disadvantages don't have to be disadvantages at all, at least in stories like these. This chapter, chapter 6, is also where we first hear Annabeth's nickname, Wise Girl. It was first given by Clarice. It was meant to be an insult, but it's not a very good one. And, of course, this is the part where the chapter gets its awesome creative chapter title, I Become Supreme Lord of the Bathroom. Percy is taken by the neck by Clarice to the camp bathrooms to dunk his head into the toilet for a, quote, initiation of the new campers. Plus, she just doesn't like Percy. What happens, of course, he still doesn't know that he's the son of Poseidon. He causes the pipes in the toilet to bust and flood and spray Clarice and her other friends in the face and completely flood them out of the bathroom. This pisses off Clarice so much because she's like, You're dead, new boy! You're dead! And, you know, Percy, or Persassy as we call him, retorts, you want to gargle with some more toilet water, Clarice? Keep your mouth shut. Percy, the king, the god of sass. Well, that's it for my episode on chapters 5 and 6 of The Lightning Thief. I hope you all enjoyed it. 
Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you will join me in the next episode. In the meantime, my fellow half-bloods, if you ever play Pinnacle with a horse, let me know who won. And if you ever become Supreme Lord of the Bathroom, well, well, just don't. <laughs>